Hey, what's up? It's Frick. There's a couple of stories that have stayed with me recently. One thing is that I learned recently that our minds are capable of recording everything we experience, everything we see and hear and touch and taste in this sort of infinitely detailed 3D kind of movie-like memory experience. Like Our brains can hold it all but that we somehow are actually just picking and choosing what we remember and omitting stuff that's unimportant or that is not us. Quotes, not us. I'm doing finger quotes, not us. That, like, this this narrative that is ours, that we call our life, that that is who we are, is something that we create by omitting parts of it. And that the truth is not the truth, it's the selected truth. So that's one thing that I heard recently. And the other thing I heard is that there was this guy, who a fisherman, who fell off a boat and survived against the odds. He fell into the icy waters of the Atlantic Ocean. And he was, he was like swimming around for days, um, floating only because his boots were kind of buoyant. He had some weird brand of boots. I read about it in the New York Times. And... Um, you know, he was just trying to stay positive and stay alert and get to the next phase of his survival for hours at a time. And he knew enough about the ocean and where he was fishing that even though he couldn't see anything, he all he could see was waves and he was in the middle of the ocean. He knew kind of where he was and that if he tried to swim over in this direction a few miles, he would find a string of buoys that were like fishing uh, lobster buoys placed by someone he knew. And he did get to one of these buoys. The currents kind of like steered him away from it. He knew that he could just flow with the current and get to the next buoy, which was like a mile away. And the point that I'm getting around to is that you can think of your life in these kinds of milestones, you know, these events that are separate, that are a mile apart, and that nothing happens in between. But in fact, when I was reading this guy's account, a lot was going on. Like most of what was happening was happening between buoys. My sister was born four years after me. I remember the day she was born. I remember when she was a baby and I remember when she was a toddler. I remember this one day that was like a lot of trauma for me where she had eaten, like the day before she had eaten uh, like a peach or a cherry or something with a pit in it. And then she was having trouble passing it. So... It like caused like a lot of pain and crying. And I don't remember what my mother was doing to assist her, but I remember that my two brothers and I were in proximity and that to a kid, it seemed like a lot of drama was going on around this event. Um, I'm sure to a parent, it was just like one of those insane days, like with the kids, you know, and like, oh, what next kind of a day. Although it you know, your experience of this changes a lot when you have siblings. My sister was the sibling I was closest to. There were times in my life where I felt I was closer to my younger brother, Dave. But overall now, looking at everything, I feel she's the person who I always could talk to, the person who I understood and the person who understood me. And I think that like the person you're closest to is the person who you hurt the most. I think that's the person you live through the most stuff with. It's the person who you're most raw around and you allow yourself um, to open up and 
be fully who you are around that person. And it's unfortunate in a way that that person also gets the brunt of any kind of like negativity or any sort of overflow you get across the boundaries of what's okay, you know. And um, I, I have always felt that my sister endured a lot of pain because of me, because of that, you know, and that it, it has been a difficulty. When I was 17, I was out of the house. I was gone, and I wasn't just gone. I was far away. Like, I didn't know a lot of what was going on at home at that point. I didn't really know my sister when she was becoming a young woman, when she was in high school. I missed out on, like, a lot of major life events as she was becoming who she would become. You know, we were apart. Separation phase. And after a few years of that, I did move back to Boston. And at one point, she had expressed to me and other members of my family that she really felt that she had endured some pain, you know, and and trouble from me and my actions. And it was a very difficult, painful thing to face. It was hard. It was a hard thing, and it kind of felt like an infinity of time was ahead of us, That uh, of where, like, the healing that would need to take place it seemed like it could go on for forever. It seemed insurmountable. I felt like I wanted to make it right and that I had to make it right, but that I couldn't make it right. And then shortly after this time, I got a voicemail from my older brother. He was in the hospital. He'd been called in and Lisa was sick and she was very sick. She was critical. Um, and I should come to the hospital right away. And they really didn't know it was wrong. Could have been something viral. Um, they didn't understand. All they knew was that her roommates found her unconscious in her apartment. And like she turned blue. So they rushed her to the emergency room. She was in a hospital bed, unconscious, on a respirator. Her hands were black. And her feet were like blackish, bluish. And she looked dead. She looked like what I imagined. Actually, she looked worse than dead, to be honest with you. And the the most jarring, traumatic thing to see was, um, like her the movement of her chest rising up and down, inflating and deflating, on this respirator. That was the most disturbing thing to me because it's not the gentle kind of rising and falling that we do right now, all day. It's not like when you see a person sleeping, how there's this like soft, slow, occasional inflation of the chest. It's, it wasn't like that at all. It was like this pumping. It was like, and they didn't know what was wrong with her, but there was this infection that was like going around in her blood 
some point, they determined that she had a staph infection and that they she had stabilized a little bit. She got a little stronger and, and that they might be able to like look in her chest where they felt this infection was starting and see what was going on and try to clear out the infection, see what was going on. And they were able to do that and stabilize her. And what had happened was that she had, just a week before, had gotten breast implant surgery. And a staph infection got into her body during this procedure. She did feel that she had some flu-like symptoms a couple days after the surgery, and she did call her doctor, the doctor who did the implants, and he just advised her to watch it. You know, And, and a couple days later, she was unconscious and turning blue in her room. It had taken over her body entirely and nearly killed her. It's really rare, but it can happen, it seems, that a staph infection can live in the tiny, tiny little space in the valve of a saline breast implant. I don't totally know how those implants are um, put in and inflated and like it, what the order of events are, like if they kind of have saline added to them after they're put in, I think that's what it is. And that there's this little valve through which they do that. And the valve has a tiny space that could harbor um, like a bacteria or a staph infection or whatever. And that's what happened. And they were able to get in there and remove these implants and remove the infection and her health turned around. She was unconscious through all of this and in the ICU unit. And a decision was made um, to amputate her legs below the knee and a lot of um, parts of her hands, all of her fingers. She wasn't really conscious for any of this. She was like kind of alert for maybe like an hour or something here and there between when they had stabilized the infection and and gotten to the point of doing the amputations. So I don't even think she really understood what was going on around her. I think she was in a haze of like medically induced coma and um, heavy painkillers and illness. And so she slowly over days or weeks like awoke to being in um, a body that was ravished, like all but destroyed by this illness and this cure. And then began this process of figuring out what was left and who she was and, um, you know, a, uh, a rehabilitation and ultimately to start her life again. I think people think of themselves as this body, this thing, this torso with two legs attached to it and two arms and a head with two eyes and a nose and a mouth and some hair on the top of it. And that's it. That's you. Like, that's what you are. And most of us don't ever have to confront then the dilemma of, okay, if something gets taken away, if they take off parts major parts of that, am I still that thing? Am I that thing, but something's missing? Am I a new thing? Was I ever that thing? Am I um, maybe even 
more so who I was supposed to be? It's a question that certainly never crossed my mind. And so she would then set out over a long period of time to learn to just like basic things first, like sit up in bed by herself, um, take care of herself, go to the bathroom, move around in a wheelchair, you know. And then it would shift to like learn to walk on prosthetic legs, learn to drive a car, um, learn to count change, learn to sign a check, learn to eat, you know, like, all these things that we all already do and don't have to think about how to do. How to gesture. How to point to something. How to point to yourself when you say, me. Or mine. You know. Or yours. And it was like during that early process that she had decided to write a book about her life and her experiences up to that point, including largely the narrative of how she had felt that she had been hurt and and how her, her trust and safety had been betrayed by me and um, other people in her life. And she told me about this and she shared these writings with me. It felt like I was being... Um, on some level, kind of outed. It felt scary and potentially very bad for me. But I had this sense, and it was clear, there was no dilemma about it. It was crystal clear to me that her writing this and getting it published was the best thing. There's a lot of options of what you could do with your life and yourself, and I felt she should write that book. She set out to write it, you know, and, and um, she would share it with me occasionally. She lived in Lower Alston. That's a neighborhood in Boston that I felt in some way she owned. And that was really her home. That was where her people were, the tattooed artists with skateboards. And um, people, uh, there was a community there for her. You know, and I had met her for uh, Korean food in that neighborhood. I remember this crystal clear. And I asked her how the book was coming. And she told me that um, she decided to stop writing it. I asked her why. And she said she felt differently about the events that she was writing about. That was all the explanation that she offered. And I felt at that moment that it was the biggest thing she had ever given me and the world was this like, I felt that it was an act of forgiveness that we were experiencing. And I don't know, it was a big one. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know how a person finds that or happens upon that in themselves. Or creates that I don't I don't know where that comes from it is something that I I turn to often and think about and try to um, enact in my own life I try to think of it as something to hold oneself to she was 21 when she lost her legs and fingers 
to that staph infection. listening to the Frickin' Circus podcast. Come back next week for the conclusion of this episode. And if you want to reach me in the meantime, send me an email. It's frick at frickincircus.com. Until then, peace out, sauerkraut. <laughs>